Well, good morning, everybody. Glad to be here, and uh, I again apologize to a certain extent for last week. I got talking about something that I really cared about with that Africa trip, and I looked down, and it was 10 after, and I felt terrible for all of you. So if at any point you ever wanted to talk, I could have talked for another three or four hours. So I'd be happy to fill you in if you want more details or if you want to talk to me more about things, I'd be glad to do it. I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, then I'm going to tell you what we're doing this morning and over the next few weeks, and then we'll jump into our study of Joel in chapter 2. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are here at Lakeside. Thank you, Lord, that you give us the privilege week after week of gathering together to hear your word and to pray for one another and to rejoice through music and to worship you and we just pray lord that that will continue in our sunday school class right now as i begin to teach again out of joel i pray that you give us ears to hear help us to be alert to gather from the text what truths you want us to apply to our own lives and i pray that our time of study together will ultimately make each and every one of us more like christ we love you lord and we ask all these things in jesus name amen well, it is good to be back this morning and getting ready to jump back into the book of Joel. Now, if you don't recall, we have completed through Joel chapter 2, verse 14. So this morning, we're going to be in Joel chapter 2, verse 15. And I hope over the next couple of months to make quite a bit of progress through this book. So if you've got your Bibles and you open them up to Joel chapter 2 verse 15, we'll start our study. And before we start our study of the actual words, I want to give a quick summary and an overview of where we are so that there's a context for the important things that Joel is talking about. As we have said over and over since I started teaching this book, Joel, is bringing God's message to the southern kingdom of Israel, often referred to biblically as Judah, and he's giving them a warning. We're not told the specific sin, but it seems that they had a measure of prosperity. They were an agricultural economy, and they had some prosperity, but they had forgotten the Lord in some respect, such that there was a tone of judgment that permeates everything. In fact, all of chapter 1 was a reflection on an aspect of God's judgment that had already taken place, which was the locust plagues. And we discussed that in great detail. The locusts had come through wave after wave and wiped out everything, wiped out every crop, every anything that you could use for food or drink, so much so that the priests couldn't even worship by offering the sacrifices that God required. In other words, God had devastated the economy, but also God had ceased the worship in the temple. The world was at a standstill, as it were, for this group of God's people. At the end of chapter 1, Joel was saying, cry out to the Lord. We've got to get together. We've got to cry out to the Lord. And then as he got into chapter 2, he points to a future judgment, something that's on the horizon that's going to be even worse than the locust. As I discussed when I taught through it, there's some differing of opinions of interpretation, but I think the best understanding is that all of the beginning of chapter 2 is a warning that a future invasion by a foreign army is going to occur 
It's going to be a foreign army of pagans, but it's going to be an army that is under the control of God to inflict an even greater judgment on them. It was a fearful warning, doom and gloom. It's a picture of a catastrophic event that's coming. But with all the darkness, with the judgment that already hit with the locust plagues, with the judgment that's being talked about that's coming in the future, there is a chance for the people to avoid judgment. And we spent some time talking about this in Joel chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Even though the people had turned from the Lord, and even though God had sent an initial judgment of the locusts, and even though God was saying a greater judgment is coming, ultimately, which would be the ultimate day of the Lord, he's saying, if you stop, even now, and cry out to me because of my character, because I want to forgive, because I want to bless you, I'll relent. The judgment that you're being warned about won't happen. But it's got to be genuine repentance. It's got to be repentance from the heart. There'll be outward manifestations of it. The weeping and the sorrow. But you can't fool God. It has to be real. God is inviting the people to repent. To avoid judgment. Even that, it's, it's in faith. It's not presumptuous. It doesn't dictate to God. But God is saying, if you will do this, I may very well forestall judgment. So that really summarizes very briefly all the lessons I've done up to this point. But we're not done in Joel with the theme of repentance. And there's an aspect of the repentance now that's going beyond what's already been said. Because it's going beyond the individual, which I believe is probably more what we just talked about in verses 12 to 14. Individuals needed to repent. And now, Joel is calling them to a national reckoning. I mean, these are God's people. It's His covenant people that He set apart. And because they have sinned collectively as a nation... There's an aspect where they need to repent collectively as a nation. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. I think I'll get through easily all three verses. But what Joel is dealing with is an, a call to national repentance. So my outline is very simple. I, I have not liked my outlines lately. But they are helpful to me to think through the material and to communicate it. So this is just a simple outline, three aspects of national repentance. Three aspects of national repentance. I'm going to read this section in its entirety, then we'll go through each of those aspects. In Joel chapter 2, verse 15, he says this, Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, 
Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priest, the Lord's ministers, weep before the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? Again, I believe this is a call to national repentance and the first aspect of this is relatively simple. The nation must act with urgency. The nation must act with urgency. Verse 15 actually begins with the exact words of chapter 2 verse 1. He says, blow a trumpet in Zion. If you look in your Bible and you look up at verse 1, he said the exact same thing. Blow a trumpet in Zion. This is something to get everyone's attention. But as in chapter 1, the warning was, the trumpet was a trumpet of warning. In other words, the army's here. Wake everybody up because the invasion is starting. Here it's different. It's a type of trumpet blast that is to get people's attention. It's just as urgent, but it's to get the people to gather. He says, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. This isn't the type of warning in verse 1 where everybody was to get on their battle gear. This is one where everybody is to gather together. It's almost identical language and a similar idea to Joel chapter 1, what's at verse 14. Joel chapter 1 verse 14 said, Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So the response to the initial locust plague was this national gathering and crying out and that's what God is calling for here as well. God's judgment is on the horizon but it's not too late. But the people have to have an urgency. They have to stop their sin. They have to gather together and cry out to the Lord. It's not the only time in Israel's history. Many times they were required to fast and have a solemn assembly. The idea is that you drop what you're doing. This isn't work. This isn't play. This is an earnest time of all of God's people coming together before the presence of God. And it makes sense in this context. This is a national issue. The nation as a whole is being judged, which means the nation as a whole has to come together. It's a national calamity which requires national action. As I was typing these things up, my mind does strange things at times, but you remember back in the old days when there was just TV... And periodically you'd hear the alert come through. The beep, beep, beep. This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. And then at some point they say, if this had been an actual emergency, you would have... That's what's happening in Israel, except it is a national emergency. The horn is going off and it's saying, this is a real emergency. The nation must act with urgency. But there's a second aspect. The nation must act in unanimity. The nation must act in unanimity. 
In other words, since every individual in the nation had a part in bringing God's judgment upon the people, every person in the nation has to be a part of crying out. Verse 16, gather the people, sanctify the congregation. Again, these are God's covenant people. This isn't just in general, get everybody you can find to come together. This is a warning to a unique people who had a unique relationship with God. God had called the nation of Israel out from amongst all the pagan nations and set his favor upon them. There's a sense in which he is telling them, you need to reclaim this identity of being set apart. The trumpet's blown. What's it for? Get the people together. This is serious. Set them apart. Again, this is almost identical with what I already read in chapter 14. Proclaim an assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land. This is just spelling it out in perhaps a little bit more detail. In chapter 2, he says, assemble the elders... But then he says, gather the children and the nursing infants. There's a sense in which this is unusual. If we were going to have a time of corporate prayer to repent for something, we wouldn't normally think of bringing the children and nursing infants. I think what Joel is making clear, however, is that guilt is on every single member of the nation. Probably the idea of elders here has something to do with chronological age more than just the leadership. But every adult in Judah, every child, even a child that is not old enough to do anything but nurse a newborn. As I studied this more and I read more about things, there's a sense in which this is just trying to tell us it's wall-to-wall everyone, but there's another sense in which everyone, including those infants, share in the guilt. Now, we often think of children as innocent, and in one sense, we are correct, particularly at the youngest. They've not had a chance to start sinning yet, willfully. You don't have to be very old to be willfully sinning, but probably if you're nursing, you're not quite there yet. But the Bible makes clear the guilt of sin is on everyone. Everyone is born into Adam's sin. Romans 3.10 says there is none righteous, not even one. And that's comprehensive. So Joel, in as solemn and as imprecise fashion as he can, is telling the entire nation, you need to act Now, this isn't some people, this is everyone. There's no cry room for this event. There's no nursery. Everybody, young and old, is to be there. And to emphasize this, he says something that to us might seem unusual, but to the ears that would have originally heard it, it would make perfect sense. He says in verse 16 in the second half, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. And this isn't saying there are separate places. What it's talking about is in essence the honeymoon suite. 
Every Israelite, again, would understand the implications because being newly married was a gift from God and a husband and wife were to consummate their marriage and enjoy their new relationship of intimacy. And it was so important to God that his covenant people prioritize this that through Moses, he actually gave a special set of rules for that first year of marriage. In Deuteronomy 24.5, it says this, When a man takes a new wife, he shall not go out with the army nor be charged with any duty. He shall be free at home one year and shall give happiness to his wife whom he has taken. So there was a unique place for a newlywed couple. They were excused from a lot of things. And Joel is saying, look, not even that excuse flies right now. You just got married, the honeymoon can wait. Everybody in Judah has to come together right now. There is no excuse. You're nursing a baby, bring your baby. You've got infants, bring your infants. You're old, you get there however you can. You're newly married, tough break, the honeymoon waits. Everybody has to be there. Now again, it seems clear that something so drastic has caused by the failure of God's people to prioritize Him and His Word. It's not hard to imagine if you could step back before Joel chapter 1 verse 1 that the people were just minding their own business. They seemed to have a measure of prosperity. Why is that? Because the locusts had something to wipe out. They were just going about their business. They were receiving the blessings of God without giving Him any credit or any thought. It's easy to imagine that the people were living their daily lives, even those who were a part of the covenant people, and they were going about their business, and they were working, and they were setting up families, and they were doing everything they were doing, and God was an afterthought. I don't think that's hard to imagine. Why do I say that? Because we live in that very situation today. We're not, in America, God's covenant people. Don't misunderstand, but what we see around us is that people go on and on about their business, including many people claiming to be Christians, and they don't even give God a thought. There's not a thought or consideration of God, and most of our society there is no desire to serve Him. And for God... In his view of his chosen people, enough was enough. He had already wiped out everything they had. And he said, I'm going to wipe out you unless you turn to me. This is God himself saying, stop it and come to me. In fact, going to our third aspect of national repentance, certainly there's an urgency. Certainly there has to be a unanimity. It has to be everyone. But third, the nation must be concerned with God's glory, not its own circumstances. The nation must be concerned with God's glory, not its own circumstances. And I won't be able to do this thought justice because of the limitations of my ability to communicate 
But none of this was about Judah. All of it was about God. Verse 17 says this, Let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. Now I mentioned before from chapter 1, when he said assemble the people, it was to the house of the Lord. In Jerusalem, which is the centerpiece of where this letter would have been directed, the Temple Mount stands above everything. I would have loved to have seen what any of the temples looked like. Either Solomon's Temple or the pale comparison that was rebuilt in the era of Ezra and Nehemiah, or Herod's temple in Jesus' day. But the fact remains, where the temple was, was where the people went to be in the presence of God himself. God is everywhere. God's not limited by any building. He doesn't need a house made with hands. And yet, for his covenant people, he made it clear, the central place that you worship me is Jerusalem. It's not in my notes, but I read it in past weeks where Solomon was praying over the temple and he basically said, Lord, if your people will turn towards this place, hear them. So in this sacred, solemn assembly, the priests, the Levitical priests, the ones who no longer had anything to do because there was no raw materials for them to offer sacrifice, God's given them something to do. You lead the way. Weep between the porch and the altar. The porch and the altar, I never will fully understand what the temple would look like. You see a bunch of pictures, but it was a specific place. But the specific place in and of itself is not the issue. The issue is, it's at God's temple, it's where we go to worship, and the priests are supposed to be there, and even though they don't have any materials to offer the daily sacrifices because the locusts took them all out, they have something to do. Weep. Lead in mourning and sorrow, in brokenness over sins. Again, this wasn't one of those things where you stand and get everybody to look at you. It was a face-to-the-ground brokenness. In Joel chapter 1, verse 13, he said, Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. It's, it's that type of picture of the ministers of God being broken over their personal sin, but also over the sin of the country that had reaped such a profound and painful judgment and which forebode an even worse judgment on the horizon. But this was with all the people gathered. It's not a perfect analogy, but the equivalent of what would be said here is all the people at Lakeside, everybody in the sanctuary, the elders up front, you lead the sorrow. And it's interesting here because God, of course, is the ultimate author of Scripture. But I think I read verse 17 a few times and not realizing the implications here. God is telling the people what to pray. He's specifically telling the Levites, this is what you should pray. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. 
Why should they among the people say, Where is their God? This is one of those times where the words mattered. But it's interesting what God directed them to pray. He didn't say, pray that these circumstances will pass. Pray that the army won't come. Pray that we'll be defended from the attacks of the enemy. Pray that the crops will grow quickly so that the people who are facing famine right now will have food. Now again, none of those things are wrong to pray for in and of themselves. Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. But at this moment, none of that mattered. What was at stake was the very character and glory of God. Why is that? Because Israel represented something. They were God's chosen people, set apart to magnify and glorify His name. What was the significance of make your inheritance, meaning all of the southern kingdom, a reproach? A byword among the nations. In other words, it's the type of situation where people would just be looking at Judah and going, boy, what a, what a, what a mess those people were. They're wiped out. Do you remember they used to be a great country? They used to have all this stuff. Look at them. They're pathetic. So the prayer is, Lord, don't let that happen to your people. Don't let them devolve into a state of judgment such that all the other nations around them would look and mock at them and laugh at them. But again, even that prayer, which is saying, spare your people, isn't about your people. Because it comes down to that last saying, why should they among the people say, where is their God? The pagan peoples of this time worshipped many gods. That's what kept getting Israel in trouble because they kept following after the gods of the pagans. God said, you should have no other god before me. You shouldn't make an idol. What did all the peoples that God had called them out of do? They made idols. You go back to Abraham, the father of the nation. His father had idols. So God had called his people and set them apart. Don't follow other gods. Don't do all those things. And yet they were constantly sinning and doing it. And here's what other gods were perceived to do for those foreign countries. Some of this is in scripture. Some of this is in history. The idea was if you won in battle, it meant your God was better than their God. So I go into battle and I've got my gods. You go into battle, you've got your gods. Who wins? The guy with the better gods. Now, of course, we understand, and the Bible makes clear, there's only one God. But God was jealous for his own glory, such that if Israel continued on their path and were wiped out, people would mock God and accuse God of being impotent and of being something less than the almighty God sovereign of the universe. If Israel... If the southern kingdom succumbed to that invasion, people would talk badly about God himself. Again, this is not an unusual theme in scripture. For example, in Psalm 42 verse 9, it says, I will say to God my rock, why have you forgotten me? 
Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Verse 10. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? So, so here's the ultimate point of all this. And again, I struggle to accurately articulate it, even though I think I get the point. Judah, as a nation, had to deal and cry out because of the real issue, which was God himself. The prayer of the priest would, if answered, result in sparing the nation and would result in the people not being overwhelmed by this invading army. But the ultimate issue was God and His glory. It's one of those weighty theological principles that challenges us. Because there's a sense in which we understand God is overwhelming, He's all-powerful, He's the sovereign God of the universe, and who are we? But I don't want to paint the wrong picture about God because what makes the gospel so beautiful is God cares about nothings like us. He cared about us enough to send His Son to die for us. He cares about us enough to tell us, to command us, ask me, I'll give you what you need. But even in that, we have to be careful not to lose sight of where we fit in the scheme. God is merciful to us. He is gracious to us. But ultimately, everything He does, including saving us and blessing us and protecting us, is for His glory and for His honor. There is no time when we'll be sharing the stage with God, so to speak will be welcomed into his loving embrace, will dwell with him for all eternity, will, in a sense, with Christ, will reign with him. But the reality is God is always God. And we never will be. So as God was telling the people, come together. This is a time of national repentance. Everybody gather at the temple. Everybody, I don't care what age you are, I don't care what marital, everybody get together. And when you get here, understand what's at stake. It's not just about you. Even at that moment, God's saying, it's about me and my glory. Again, it's one of those challenging things to deal with because God did care about his people. God always preserved a remnant of his people. Over and over we see God blessing Israel in spite of, not because of, their faithfulness. But God understood then what he tries to communicate to us in his word now. If our focus is on ourselves and our own issues, we don't have true repentance ever. It's always got to be about the Lord and His glory. So that's what God called Joel to give as His message to His people. A national crying out to God 
for mercy so that God's name would not be dishonored. There's a sense, I know, in which most of us, if not all of us, let me rephrase that. I think all of us would desire this. It'd be wonderful if this call was given to America. Everybody to gather together. Everybody do this. And it would be, but that call won't be given. Why? Because America is not God's chosen people. However, the church in America is God's chosen people. And we could, if God would will it, engage in enough personal repentance and corporate repentance such that God might choose to use us to impact our nation in a different way. Do I think we need that type of national repentance? Of course we do. What I know that if the politicians in Washington did this tomorrow, it would be an exercise in futility. Because if the heart is not regenerated, it's just a show. It's just another thing that makes people feel good. And I don't doubt that if anything, it would give a misplaced notion of security to a nation that really is under threat of God's judgment. So while I would love for God to have given that message to America such that if America did this, it would be one thing, I do believe that's the message given to the church in America. I'm speaking beyond just Lakeside. But the true churches in America, I feel, quite often we've lost our way. It's easy. It's easy for me. I work here. This is what I do. It's easy for me, and I live and breathe and I work here, to lose sight of why we're even here. Because there's programs and there's this and there's this and it's all got to keep going and everything and the plates are spinning and those are all good things. But if we're doing all of those things and in the midst of it we forget God, what's the point? So I think there's a sense every time I read a book like this and every time we as the people of God are confronted with words like this where we have to apply it to ourselves and to our practices in the church. I can assure you next Sunday there'll still be a cry room. There's still going to be a nursery. But I would encourage each one of us to carefully reflect on our daily activities and our daily lives and even our Sunday activities and see whether or not in our hearts God really is at the center of everything. And if in any aspect of our lives, God is not the motivating force, God in His glory, not our own comfort, not our own desires, not our own wishes, but God in His glory, then we know where we can repent right at that moment. So let me encourage you. Do some self-examination this week. And when I say do some self-examination, I don't mean spend all your time thinking about all the other areas where everybody else in the class needs to repent. And all the areas where you know the elders need to do things differently. Although if you see that, you tell us. 
But the call is on our individual hearts to see where we stand. Please join me as I close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you know in my heart of hearts I would desire and Lord it's because of my lack of faith that I don't pray more diligently for the national repentance of America. Lord I know that that repentance can't occur until individual hearts are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet there are enough true believers in America that our impact on our culture and on our government should be far greater. Lord, I pray that you would stir us out of any sense of contentment with how things are. And Lord, that you would inspire within us a desire to impact our culture and our fellow citizens and our families not for our sake, but for your glory, so that people would praise the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, that will not come about at the ballot box or through better laws. It will come about because we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with individuals who in turn come to faith and share with other individuals. And I do pray, Lord, that a revival a genuine revival, not just emotionalism, but a genuine revival of repentance and faith would break out in America. Lord, we desperately need it. It's not hard, Lord, to see that the judgment you've throughout history inflicted upon nations that turn against you and reject you and mock you would be appropriate for the place that we live. But Lord, help us not despair. Help us not get distracted. Help us to keep our focus on you and your glory. Lord, help us be the best citizens this country knows. Help us be active in every way as citizens of this country, but help us to do it not for the sake of this country, but for the sake of you and your gospel. Help us not to do it because we want to see things differently for our own pleasures and comfort, but Lord, help us do it because we want to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for your glory. So I pray, Lord, as we cover texts like this written long ago to your covenant people that you would stir us, that you would apply it to our hearts, that you would help us to understand how we can be a part of what you're doing in our country. Lord, we love you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.